Welcome to Is There There There, the graphic machine podcast that goes beyond the surface of marketing to tell you what's new and why you should care about it. Today's episode is the Managed Expectations Edition. We hear a lot and we say a lot, all of us together as a society, about managing expectations. So we wanted to talk about what does that actually mean and is that a good thing to do or is it actually counterproductive? Before I delve into what I have found managing your expectations. Already already broken. I know. Lowered expectations. We're going to put the link to that on the site if anybody <laughs> is old enough to remember that. Brian, do you want to talk about any initial thoughts that you have about managed expectations and manage mine? My general sense of this is that it is easy to try and see it as an opportunity to keep from people from getting upset. And I think in the space of marketing or product placement or something that something will do, it's a thing that we've incorporated into the process to try and keep people happy. I think, though, that it ultimately just makes it possible to not meet the highest level of what you might be aiming to achieve. So it sort of has a, a dual purpose. It's one to say like, well, you know how we said that thing we we're going to do, we might not be able to quite get to that. And I think there's a level of honesty to that, but it doesn't change people's disappointment. I think it just sort of acknowledges that it's happening. What's so interesting to me about that is that you articulated perfectly what I think the assumption always is, which is managed expectations equals something less than I would have had had you not said anything. Nobody ever thinks managed expectation means, actually, I'm going to tell you that you should expect something better than what you would have expected previously, or you should expect it faster. Managed always means you may have this view of how things are going to work. It's not going to go that way. It's going to be slower, more expensive, whatever. Do you think, though, that this has come out of the notion that people have unrealistic expectations for, one, how long something takes or how good it can be or what it can possibly do that it will fly around the room and it will also make you coffee and tell you that you're wonderful, <laughs> this magical object? Find that uh, thing. Yes. Please buy like five of them for me. <laughs> that would be awesome. Part of it is a reaction to that. To be completely reductive, I think that there are generally types of people. I think there are the people that no matter what you tell them, they're going to want the coffee maker that flies around the room and tells me I'm pretty. There are people who no matter what you tell them are going to expect the worst version of everything all the time. And then there are the people in the middle who are kind of taking cues from you about how something's going to go, when it's going to be delivered, and left to their own devices, they might have unrealistic expectations but when faced with what the reality is or when you say sure. this is how it's going to go then they well they it, adjust. Seems, it seems like the opportunity there is to settle for something in the middle or to be mediocre and i i hope that that's not the intention of managing expectations generally that i know that sometimes that's a net effect of it but that you know that that isn't the goal when you set out to make something in the world or when you are working on something it seems like that a challenge for sure i absolutely agree with you um managing expectations, that term has come to be equated with it's an excuse for mediocrity. And we saw this in practice this last uh, week uh, at the Iowa caucus where all the candidates... Unless were... you're Carly Fiorina. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then you're just heading out because of the storm. Right. It's a opportunity before the thing happens to say, I might not do as good as you thought I would do. Is there a positive effect of that happening? And do you think the spin of that really works in that moment? Or is it just something that people have seen done and 
so they feel like they have to do, or there are people inside their camps are telling them you absolutely have to do this. Do you think it? Do you think it actually works? I don't know that it works to achieve the goal that we think it's supposed to achieve, which is to make the person on the receiving end feel comfortable with the decreased level of whatever they're getting. What it does and why people do it is it's a form of CYA. Cover your arse. It's a way of saying, look, I told you this was going to be a gajillion dollars over budget. It's a gajillion dollars over budget. You know, this is what it is. It's it's not a surprise. Do you, do you think it runs a risk, though, at some point that you have to manage the managed expectations and that we end up in a well, Mobius strip of like uh, <laughs> expectation management to the point where we just all we're doing is wrapping around and circle, circle, it circle. It really feels like that some days. It is true. I mean, if the thing that you're trying to manage is something that's so, so dire, like, for instance, the, a gajillion dollars or even a million dollars over budget, people aren't going to hear you say, you know, this might come in at a million dollars over budget and get comfortable with that. They're going to spend the next however long crossing their fingers, hoping that it doesn't come in at that. And when it does come in at that, they're still going to be mad. It's more of a way of saying, of like washing your hands of it. Like, well, I told you, you know, there's nothing I can do. And that's the problem that I have with the the concept of managed expectations is that it's like it's giving yourself a dispensation to not try harder. Yeah. As soon as I tell you, well, this might happen, now it's okay for that thing to happen. I don't have to try to find a way for that thing to not happen. You didn't warn me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And part of that is reaction to things that have happened and people coming back after a situation saying, well, you never made me aware of this. And it really wouldn't have changed the net effect of it, but it's the opportunity to apportion blame, essentially. Well, there's a difference between providing somebody with the information. I mean, if something's going to be a million dollars over budget, you need to tell them that regardless. Sure. But there's a way of doing it that's, you know, this is a known potential outcome. We're doing everything we can to avoid this versus, listen, I just want you to be prepared. This is probably what's going to happen. So in messaging, do you think that it matters, let's say in the marketing space, do you think that what the candidates have done uh, and managing expectations of their performance. Do you think that that was a necessary step? So here's where it gets interesting for me anyway, is the research behind how we interpret attempts to manage our expectations is that we are actually happier when somebody is not trying to manage our expectations. If I have really inflated over-the-top expectations of something and that thing doesn't pan out the way that I thought it would, I will still be happier than I would have had I been told, oh, you know what? It's it's probably not going to turn out that way. You need to be prepared for whatever. And it, it reinforces kind of our general outlook on life. If you're somebody who is constantly having unchecked high expectations, you look for that in life. You look, you see that more often than you do if you're somebody who's constantly, you know, got to bring yourself down to earth. In a personal relationship sure. universe, that works great. And But I then think, you got the 24-hour news cycle. That Well, I think marketing to consumers, marketing products, to yeah. consumers, that's really useful information because they can have really high expectations. And even if it doesn't deliver 100%, they're still going to be happier than if you said, you know, this detergent, it's it kind of okay, but yeah, like just be prepared. It's probably not going to get that stain out. Yeah. But where it falls down, I think, is when you're dealing with as an agency, when you're dealing with your clients, yeah. you know, it, you, you can't say, 
oh, your expectation that this ad campaign is going to result in, you know, X number of dollars of revenue. And that's really high, unrealistic expectation. You can't think like, oh, well, that's okay. I'll just let them have that expectation because they'll be happier on balance. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, (laughs) they will not. No, you're going to be at the bottom of a river somewhere. I do think that to the 24 hour news cycle, I think that part maybe is trying to take control over the story by managing expectations. If you you put out there that you're going to have this amazing performance and you didn't and you didn't do anything to blunt it before it happened, then that becomes the story and you have no, you don't get to be a participant in that story. So there's sort of the public relations angle of this, which I think there is some value to managing expectations. But in terms of when you start out a project, if you don't begin to set the boundaries for what is reasonable, it's very different than managing expectations in the, the sort of macro sense because you're you're basically saying this is what reality is, not like let's go ahead and just have that completely right. you know un unattainable goal. Well you're also dealing with the candidates, you're dealing with really a commodity that people already have a preconceived notion of. You're not dealing with a brand new product off the shelf. And so people are coming to it with a clean slate. If you had just in theory, if you had a candidate who was consistently sick, consistently debated poorly, and you continued to not increase anybody's level of expectation for how that candidate would perform, when that candidate performs at a slightly better than sub-average level, all of a sudden, it's great because he has exceeded the expectations. If you have a candidate who's always at every appearance, stellar debater, very articulate, and happens to have a cold that day, and you don't manage people's expectations by saying this person has a cold, all of a sudden they've done the worst thing in the world because they've dropped below where the expectation level was, even though it was much higher than for anybody else. Now we're going to manage our way out of this uh, situation. And what's what's happening now, PJ? So what's happening now is that this is a uh, bit of a shameless plug. One of my very, 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 very best friends is a researcher, and she is conducting a study on adult experiences. And I'm, I'm going to say this not as specific as she would say it, because I do want you to go to the website and check it out and not pre-decide if you qualify or not. She's studying individuals who are in their adult years, but had experiences when they were growing up being different in some way. So if you go to beingseenstudy.com, and we will put that link on our website, she is looking for individuals who meet a certain set of criteria, and then she will study you by sending you surveys, maybe talking to you on the phone. You don't have to be in the United States. You don't have to be any particular gender, age, over 18. Um, That's it. So go check it out. Um, The work she's doing is really, really interesting and has the potential to impact the way that children develop in coming years. My now uh, relates to the notion of how we hire people and how people go about putting job listings out there and what they're um, what they can reasonably expect back. There's a new service called Textio and their whole notion is hiring better candidates faster. One mm. of the things that's really interesting about this service and it definitely, especially in Silicon Valley where it's largely a white male dominated industry, they created this service that as you type in your job listing it actually tells you if there's gender bias in the way that you're creating the listing. It also tells what? if you are creating a listing that is largely jargon filled and 
not at the end of the day saying anything because how many times have you seen something in an organization where you're like okay those are 15 buzzwords that you strung together and it Uh doesn't mean anything this is a great way to both find better candidates but also to make sure that you're not excluding people that might reasonably apply for it because of the, the particular word choice that you're using I think it's a great example and this post is kind of the now but it's where we're headed next in a way which is the augmenting of our everyday life to help us understand things that we may not recognize that we're we're doing at a very subconscious level for towards bias and towards our preconceptions. So how do they determine the gender bias? So a lot of it is in the language patterns. Um, and, you know, one of the example that they give is uh, we are seeking a ninja, a total rock star employee. And mm. the idea of not so much that those are gender bias languages, but just that everyone has stopped reading at that point because that's such an overused. Is it Charlie Sheen? Is he hiring? (laughs) He is. (laughs) So I'm excited to see this kind of AI come into the the fold because I think it really does advance where we can go. I think that's really cool. And of course, I can't stop myself. I'm thinking down the road to when somebody has discrimination lawsuit that they bring and their lawyer says, okay, show us the attempts that you made to craft this announcement. Yeah. You know, show us the part where Textio told you that this was going to be biased toward a particular gender and that's what you wanted. There isn't really a silver bullet to change the way that people think. And that's, it's going to take a million things like this to make it different than what it is today. And so I'm glad to see that this is the first effort or an effort rather to, to make something different than it is today. I think that's really cool. I mean, I, I'm sometimes I get a little bit itchy when I think about, you know, dividing things based on like, well, this is biased toward women because it doesn't always not all women respond to that. And then are we just creating additional stereotypes and putting people into additional boxes and back to the Mobius strip? Exactly. But I think that this is a really good. That's my official pronouncement. Great. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I have no managed expectations, and I think that this will solve all of the gender and racial discrimination Great. in the labor market Done. forever. Yes. Yes. Globally. One thing. Yes. Perfect. So now let's go to what's next. Yes. So I do not have a what's next. That's not a commentary on my view of the future. It's more that I just didn't didn't have one have this one. week. All right. So Brian, what is so next? there's this little game coming up, the Super Bowl, uh, this coming weekend. Heard of it. Um, and... Microsoft has been really uh, trying to tout its new VR slash AR. VR stands for virtual reality and AR stands for augmented reality. And what they're beginning to show is with their hardware lineup with the Surface and their larger table devices that they've been working on actually for years, how it's going to change the nature of the way that people interact with the game as it's being played. And there's a video on the site that sort of shows the demonstration of what this will look like in the future, that instead of being on a TV, the surface of your table becomes the playing field that you can watch as it's happening. And it becomes this amazing experience to kind of see transform people who can't afford the tickets or can't be there in person to have a different experience, but a maybe equivalent experience in in the comfort of their own home taking it away from the notion of this very flat, controlled view that we've seen on television for years and years. So is it like if you were sitting on your couch looking at your table, it would be almost like you were in the stadium looking at the field? 
And what's really cool to think about is the idea of how this translates into video games. And so the cross-pollination, if you will, between reality of an actual football game being played versus the video game version of it a week later and how they could be on the same screen in the same way and you experience them. And so that, I think, is where it starts to get really interesting. And augmented reality has been something they've been trying to make a thing for quite a number of years now and it just hasn't taken to the degree that it probably should have but this seems like they're finally finding a more usable plausible way for it to happen wow that is cool i'm thinking about like okay yeah yeah i'm thinking about all the different things (laughs) (laughs) next time anyway wrapping wrapping this thing on up uh we wanted to thank you very much for listening to this episode and we would love your feedback on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash graphic machine inc. We have a story for each uh, or a posting rather for each uh, show. We also are on Twitter at their podcast and our agency podcast handle is at graphic machine. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye.